brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Hey, what's going on? It is Rad, and welcome to this episode of SoftRep Radio. As always, I have to mention, I have a merch store. We have a SoftRep merch store. Go check it out on the website at SoftRep.com, and uh, just maybe pick up something for you or for a loved one, send a gift. Hey, thanks for keeping our lights on. The other thing is we have a book club, and I really want to push that out there because reading is a really good thing to do. So it's SoftRep.com forward slash book hyphen club. So rewind what I just said and listen to softrep.com forward slash book hyphen club. Now today, I have someone who has written a book, an author. He's also served our country. His name is Peter Fever, and he is the former National Security Council member on public confidence in the military. Am I saying that correctly? Well, I've written a book on public confidence in the military, but my job at the White House was for strategic planning and institutional reform. So I was headed the strategic planning cell in the Bush White House. And before that, I was worked in the Clinton administration in the Defense Policy and Arms Control Directorate. Right. And here it also says, let me just drop this in, that there is a brewing crisis within the United States military recruitment and, enlist- and enlistments are down across multiple branches. Countless veterans no longer want to see their family members following in their footsteps and join to serve. As the nation's labor market remains pointly contested, becoming a new service member isn't the same appealing option for long-term financial stability that it once was, right? Joining up, having these upfront bonuses and all this opportunity. Talk to me a little bit about what I just read to you. Well, this is actually the 50th anniversary of the all-volunteer force. So 50 years ago this summer, the nation chose to transition from a draft-based form of military service to one where they just had volunteers. Of course, they're not true volunteers. They're recruited, encouraged to join. And that all-volunteer force has lasted longer and worked better than anyone thought. But we're seeing some of the strains, and you identified some of them in what you just said, that there is it's getting harder and harder to recruit mm-hmm. uh, folks. They're still meeting their targets on retention. So people who are in are tending to stay, but we're not. Uh, we're struggling to bring in new people, and so that's a challenge for uh, for the U.S. military as they uh, shift from the war on terror to meeting high intensity peer threats. But all of this is ca- happening against a backdrop of changing public attitudes mm-hmm. towards the military, and then mm-hmm. that's really what my book is about. Yeah, and the book is thanks for finish it for me. Thanks for your service, the causes and consequences of public confidence in the U.S. military. That title, thanks for your service, is that phrase that many of us have used. You know, you go into the airport, you see somebody or you learn that they're in the service or veterans and you you, you might reflexively say, thanks for your service. Mm -hmm. And often the recipient of that may feel awkward by that. They may, may or may not want to be thanked or feel uh, you know, put on a pedestal in some way. So the book looks really closely at public attitudes towards the U.S. military. And the premise or the basis of it is this striking fact. As Americans, most of us don't know much about the U.S. military at all. Most of us don't have personal connections to the military. We haven't served ourselves. And inc- increasingly, we don't have family members who served. 
But we all know one thing about the military, and that is that the public seems to hold the military in high regard, has a high confidence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what political scientists call a social fact, something that everybody seems to know. Mm -hmm. They don't know why, but they kind of know that other people seem to hold the public in high regard. I mean, hold the military in high regard. It's high regard at high remove. You know, it's thanks for your service. I'm glad you're doing it so I don't have to. Kind of like uh, someone who uh, rounds up their receipt at the local drive-thru to give to charity, and then they drive away for that extra 30 cents saying, oh, I, I did my part today. So, you know, instead of driving the Meals on Wheels vehicle to the dude's house to feed them, <laughs> you know, right. going that extra further. I'm not saying everybody can do that. Some people have time to go and volunteer right. more hands-on, and, and we're grateful for all of those helpers out there. But I would say that USAREC, United States Army Recruiting Command, has a little bit of a challenge. And I find that, you know, it's not always the football device at the fair that's going to attract the individual to come and want to join the military. And maybe if you're going to try to pitch West Point and the football team, then you're going to pull in that one dude that could throw the football. But maybe if you brought out just some dirty Humvees, (laughs) some stinky canvas with some netting over them, and set them up. Hey, man, even have like a little radar thing from the local National Guard you to set up at the fair. You know, like something like that. Like, oh, wow, is this, what is, what's all this camouflage? What's that big conduit thing going into that air conditioner? That's an air conditioner. You know, all these different smells and the environment. Otherwise, somebody's sitting at USAREC paying, or excuse me, at somewhere high levels paying for these footballs and for like all these different NASCAR, right? Let's talk about ROI per recruit, right? Trying to get them in the military. What's the ROI if you were to work? It's around a quarter of a million dollars per individual on advertising dollars. And that's taking the whole aggregated amount of like NASCAR radio. Now the Broadcasters Associations of America, you know, like the FCC, whatnot, whoever runs the radio, you have to give the military free airtime. Right. It's a law. Part of this is valuable setting aside whether it recruits anyone into the military because it at least introduces or keeps the military in the minds of right. the general public. Otherwise, they, they might not run in. There's large sections of geographic sections of the country where there's no military base within hundreds of miles. Mm-hmm. And so they're just not likely to run into the military. So the way that the military is prominent in public sports and national celebrations, and it's, it almost becomes something of a civic religion. And so there is a function for that. But one reason why it matters is that going to the heart of the recruiting, the way people are recruited into the military is through influencers, people, coaches, parents, Mm -hmm. uncles, aunts, whatever, who say, yeah, I think uh, going into the military might be a good option for you. And public confidence in the military helps promote influencers promoting others to join. That's why people are worried, because public confidence has dropped in the last several years. And if public confidence declines, that's going to make recruiting even more difficult as people begin to say, you know, I'm not sure I want you, my beloved nephew or whatever. My right. niece, I don't want you to go into the military. I'm worried about sexual assault or what what have you. What do you think about this, Peter? Let, let me throw this. So I've got friends. Let me just take a little bit more of my background for you. I do airsoft war games here in Utah on a large scale where I have everybody from like a nine-year-old to a 99-year-old running out playing war games with all of the gear on, right? It's a really fun right. time, large scale, sometimes small little operations that we do. We love it all. 
But at that point, you get these folks that come out that um, want to join the military, and then they step off from something so simple as what we're doing out there, and then they go to the National Guard. And so the National Guard's like, oh, hey, I've got a lot of friends in the National Guard through this exact thing I'm talking about, just playing some right. war games. You know, they're like, how come, you know, all these guys are joining the Guard if they want to put, put two and two together, right? Where's the positive information coming from? Because a lot of folks say, I want to join the military to me. And I'm like, well, you should go Guard. Why do I say don't go active duty? Why do I say don't go reserves? Because they take them away for like two years to some place and they need to go. But guard will still deploy if it's needed. Right. You know what I mean? I do. And let's be clear that the the number one challenge, by far and away, the biggest challenge for recruitment is the condition of the civilian labor market. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you need to know only one fact learn what is the how easy it is it to get a job in the civilian labor market when it's easy recruiters suffer mm-hmm. when it's hard that's a good recruiting environment so part of the challenge that we're experiencing today is just the fact that the labor market has been so tight for several years yes it has and some of that thing has been just rubik's cubed out of our control yeah that that's that's one thing the second thing is the pool the size of the folks who are eligible to serve and that pool is shrinking. People aren't meeting the conditions on health. Mm-hmm. You know, no, they can't have felony convictions. They have to pass the aptitude tests and so forth. And only about twenty-three to twenty-seven percent of the American youth actually are even meeting those criteria. And then, so that's you know a shrinking pool. That's a that's a challenge. Obesity, for instance. Well, is PE even the same as PE then? You know, like when I was yeah. in junior high in the nineties, we still had PEs and you know hit the showers. Right. Yeah. And like calisthenics up and downs and everything. So, I mean. And here's two other uh, two other challenges that are significant. And that is the pandemic made it difficult for recruiters to get yeah. into high schools yeah. because it was uh, high school. Yeah, it was lo- locked down. They, it was remote. A recruiter jumps in on your Zoom class. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Yeah. Anybody want to join the army? <laughs> yeah. If you think if you think it's hard to learn, you know, math on Zoom, imagine trying to recruit. Somebody oh, man. Yeah. So so there's that. And then the last thing, which is not widely known, but is is a real challenge for recruiters, is that as national health records improve, mm-hmm. then the military finds out more about health issues, whether you, for instance, have are taking certain Ritalin and other kinds Adderall, of- Adderall, I've got, that's what I was going to say, is I've got moms who've written prescriptions, gotten their kids prescriptions prior right. to 18. And it used to be the case that you know, recruiters had some wiggle room. They could w- waffle around those waivers, but now those, all of that information is right there in the file. And mm-hmm. that makes it harder to get those waivers. So yep. those are the long pulls in the tent. Those are kind of things that we don't have much control over. And I'm homing in on the, what is not the most important fact, but it's still a relevant one. And that is the way the public thinks about the military. That's mm-hmm. important too. And we need to pay attention to that because we as civilians are unwittingly undermining public confidence in the military by dragging the military into partisan culture wars. Yes. So we've made, I've got this modest proposal. I'm trying to get both sides to agree to. Oh man, Let's good luck. treat the uniformed military as non-combatants in the culture war. Right. Okay. You have a culture war, you have an argument. Those are legitimate policy disputes. Argue civilian to civilian. Republican to Leave Democrat. the uniform out of it. <laughs> Don't shoot at the military. But right now, 
we're shooting at the military and we're making the military the target. And that has the effect of politicizing the military by dragging it into partisan politics. Completely. And we're seeing that today. You know, I don't usually like to date my shows, you know, because I like people have this like timeless classiness. But I mean, you got a book coming out. Thanks for your service. It's that time of year. And right now you've got people holding out on the aisle for getting our generals elected and uh, just confirmed. confirmed. Excuse me. Yeah, I'm so apologize. It's frustrating. Right. And uh, I'm sure my listeners are all aware of it. And it's and it's, it's really harming our talent. It's really like. Why would someone want to have to put all of this time to go to school, all of this time to learn strategic planning, put all this time into West Point just to be put on hold if they ever get the shot? Right. And it's not just one individual, right? It's It's, hundreds, thousands. Well, well, it's hundreds of individuals, but each individual is also a family, right? Right. And their family is on hold. They can't move. They can't start school. And each one of them is sitting in a job that someone else is supposed to go into. So it has a second order effect of Correct. that. They move up, they move up. Mm-hmm. Right. And their families. And so it, it's reaching thousands of, you know, individual humans, even though it's only se- only, I say only, it's several hundred now, close to 300. And, and these politicians are going to think off. that these military men and women who, who swore an oath to the nation of the U.S. of America, of USA, that's what it says on their name tape, U.S. It doesn't say anything else. It says U.S. Army, U.S. Marine Corps, U.S. Coast Guard, you know, U.S. Air Force, U.S. Space Force. Yes. <laughs> okay. Guardians. Yes, there we go. Right? I mean, come on, man. You know, these guys are sitting here looking at you like, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Uh, who's holding up the Tuberville? What are you doing, man? Are you picking up a spear? Are you going to war? Let me be clear. There's a legitimate policy dispute at the root of it. And so, you know, Senator Tuberville... First, he has the prerogative to do this, but he also has, you know, it's part of his job as senator to argue the policy. Mm -hmm. My proposal is argue the policy, have the vote on the policy, but don't target the military Mm -hmm. in order to to achieve the policy debate. That's the point. And the reason why he's even doing this is because he wants abortions to not be favored to women to personnel who need to go have the procedure in a place where they didn't choose to be, but they're serving. And so they have the right to go to wherever they need to go. But he's saying, you don't have that right. He is saying that he's saying he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to confirm these generals until they take that out of the entire situation. And they're going off of this whole, you know, um, urban dictionary woke definition out there. That's like just made up by themselves. This is all made up. You know, I'm, I'm on the ground. I'm 45 years old. It's all these guys that are just like saying these words that don't have any, they're just making up this like, uh, what, what am I trying to say? This narrative. Mm-hmm. Well, the generals and flag officers that are, are currently being, having their confirmations held did not make the policy. Mm-hmm. The Biden Correct. political appointees made the policy. So the argument is between Correct. Republicans in Congress and the executive the and the legislative the branches. Yeah. That's where they're the ones who are going to have to sort this out. But in the meantime, both sides, in effect, are you know hurting the U.S. military, the uniform military, by not resolving this. And of course, the people who are suffering—I mean, the 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 long downstream consequences are that the military will be less ready to meet the national security threats. If we lived in a benign time when we didn't really need the military and we weren't facing 
serious challenges, then maybe we, you know, the consequences wouldn't matter all that much. But precisely because it's a dangerous time, this is a very uh, risky maneuver to be doing, to be playing politics with the military promotions this way. But it's not just the promotions. All of the debates about, you know, what is called diversity, equity, and inclusion, that term just now has become a trigger term. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean what it may have meant originally. Here's the facts. We have to recruit from all walks of life. We can't just recruit people who look like you and me. First of all, they'd have to get a haircut. Oh, <laughs> stop. No, no. I've been lost in <laughs> Afghanistan. I'm a colonel now. No, I mean, it's been 20 years I've been lost with my unit. Right. Okay. <laughs> but the point is they can't just recruit from one subset of the Americans. They need to recruit across the board. Yeah, a and whole so a color palette. All walks Please. of life. Please. And all walks of life have to be able to work together and get along with their differences and learn how to put mission first. All of that requires socialization, effort. The military has learned how to do this, but they've done this by not ignoring the uh-huh. elephants in the room. And when they did in the, you know, the, it took a while for... Colin uh, Powell really kind of kicked off, you know, the don't ask, don't tell to allow everybody just to be in the military and don't ask and don't tell. Okay. That, that he, he was an advocate for that community to say, let's have this in place. That was a compromise from the 1990s. It was right. very controversial at the time. That's right. And, and it was a change from what had gone before. But take the issue of, of race. You know, this is also the 75th anniversary of the executive order 9981 mm. that Truman did okay. to integrate before, the military. Yeah. So in, before 1948, we had African-Americans serving, but they had to serve in black only units. Yeah, segregated uh, units. Yeah. Segregated units. And that, you know, was recognized as an approach that would not work in the long run. It was undermining military effectiveness. And as you, you know, as Truman looks to the future in a, in a Cold War, he's going to need to tap the full strength. 100%. And so he did. But here's the crucial point. Just merely signing the order didn't take away the problem of race in the military. It right. actually took several decades of tough work. And there were times we had race riots in the military in the late 60s, early 70s, you real racial strife within the units. And, it, you know, there's still some concerns about racism in the military even today. You talk to uh, men and women uh, of color who serve, and their experience is a little different from the experience of, say, white soldiers. And so mm-hmm. it's still an issue today that has to be addressed. Of course, we, the military has made leaps and bounds progress. Oh, I, I could never imagine it not being, you know, such a colorful unit when yeah. I was in, this, in my squadron. It was just like, I met Chi-Town from Chi-Town, you know. I was like, I would never, I could never imagine not being friends and having all of these comrades and, and you know, fellow soldiers and airmen next to me from everywhere because they accepted me. Right. Well, and, and just, you know, go back to uh, the Korean War. So just a few years after the integration, Truman Order, the Marines are fighting the rear guard action in Chosen Reservoir, the mm-hmm. so-called Frozen Chosen. Mm-hmm. And it's it's one of the great, you know, heroic tales of the U.S. Marine Corps. They couldn't have achieved that without the integrated units that they had That's right. from just a few years before. And so when you're in the foxhole and you're being shot at, you yeah. know, all you care about is that the person next to you has got your back. And so... 
the person next to you has to have your back. Right. And if they're poisoned by whatever, you know, bias or prejudice, then that's a problem for you and for the unit. But if they are mission first, then the then the race is secondary. A hundred percent. And again, that goes back to like the draft and, and conscription, right? Wouldn't you say that's kind of the same thing where you're kind of getting forced to join a military is conscription, right? Here's my view on, on the draft. Yeah. I think it's a cure that's worse than the disease. Yeah. So if you say, well, we, I'm worried that Americans have not come together. Let's have a draft to bring Americans together. I don't think that works. I don't think it works. That's not been, that was not the experience. Forced patriotism is not. Yeah. Yeah. All volunteer army military where you want to go and do it. You're like wholeheartedly in it. I choose to do this. That's a patriot. (laughs) Well, and the, and the fact is that our all volunteer force is much more capable, much more competent, much more professional than was the draft. They want to be there. And we expect our U.S. military today to fight according to the laws of war to meet a standard that the draft army just never could meet. And they didn't fight that way. It couldn't fight that way. Are you speaking of like the Geneva Convention style? Yes. Well, not targeting civilians. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you know, not committing war crimes, Mm -hmm. et cetera. And our current force is far more professional because they're so much better trained and they're able to use high tech weapons that are more precise mm-hmm. uh, rather than the you know area blanket uh, bombing that was the case in, Just in World a, War II. the brutal aspect of like, you know, trench warfare or, exactly. you know, holy and so cow. That, that requires the professional military that we have. And that's why mm-hmm. I prefer making the all volunteer force viable. And then solving the problem of national civic pride through some other way. Mm-hmm. I'm open to national service mm-hmm. and opportunities to serve, but a military draft is is a cure that's worse than the disease. Unless we meet, you know, some you know, World War Three situation where now we need everybody. So Terminator that, is here. Yeah, you know, and uh it's you know, it's, it's coming to life, right? The movies from the eighties, these guys that are getting older are like, how do I win my war? I need terminators. I need something crazy, man. We got it. What, what video was that? Blade runner? What are we, how are we going to do it, man? Come on. Yeah. You need the Wolverines from uh, red Dawn. So, Oh, please. Wolverines all day, huh? <laughs> all day. Go ahead. Go back to town. You go to your daddy. Go on. <laughs> As a sideline, maybe you'll have me back for this, but I, I teach a course with General Dempsey, the retired chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Oh, that's awesome. I teach a course here called American Grand Strategy Through Film. And I taught the, I teach the course because my students were not getting my references to Red Dawn. And Oh, my gosh. You know, the average undergrad hasn't watched Red Dawn. And so I said, I, that does it. I'm teaching a course that will require you to watch Red Dawn and many other movies. Oh, I've had Darren Dalton on the show from Red Dawn. He plays Daryl, the mayor's son. He's like, uh, as student body president, I uh, elect that we all go back to town and give ourselves up. (laughs) It's It's a tough role. He had a tough role. Oh, he did. Oh, yeah. See Thomas Howell? Oh, no. Is it a different subject? Is it, though? Is Red Dawn a different subject? Is it, though? Really? No, you're great. I would love to have you back on. And uh, you can even bring uh, General Dempsey on, and we can have a three-way here, and just we could talk about it. Because I just had some guys on the other day, former Ranger, former Green Beret, and they have a show called Shift Fire on YouTube, and they'll pause movies. They'll say, well, right there, that backblast from the RPG probably would have killed everybody in the POWs of Rambo. Let's keep playing it. 
uh-huh. Oh, and then he yeah, wakes, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, a lot of problems with those kind of movies, and especially the Rambo. We watched the Rambo movie, and that, you know, it, when he he shoots down a helicopter with a bow and arrow, it's a little, you know. Oh, man, be- though. But he does that draw on it. So beautiful, yeah. man, on that rock. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's going at it. <laughs> oh, you, anyway, we, yes. we digress. But let me bring it back to uh, the topic, because increasingly what, the average American knows about the military may come from movies, right? Right. So the military can't ignore Hollywood. And of course it doesn't. It works closely with Hollywood to try to get its message out. And that's right. It should do so because for many Americans, that's their connection to the military. They they see the military, you know, before an NFL football game on TV and they go to a movie, Top Gun Maverick or something. And that tells them what they think they know about the military. And so uh, that's a concern. We Public confidence in the military is a function of how much your personal connection is to the military. People with a personal connection or who know more about the military have higher confidence in the military as well. I have some pretty high confidence in them. Yeah, that's because you have personal connections. I sure do. I sure do. Now, with thanks for your service, are are you referencing, you know, uh, folks that come back from, you know, their time over there and uh, they have the the same perspective that actually happened to them and occurred over there, or they kind of like exaggerate on what took place to them, even though they already were wounded, anything like that. So that's not, the book doesn't look into that, but I I know what you're, you're talking about. That's there's a whole other field of study that looks at what's the experience of war and combat Mm -hmm. on the individual. And then what's it like for them to go back to civilian society mm-hmm. and to imagine, I mean, all the way back to uh, Homer's Odyssey, right? That's that's what that's about. This is a, a longstanding concern in Western literature. And uh, I teach about that in other courses, but that's not what the focus of, of, of this, this book is on that. No, yeah. no. And so, but, how do, so the public confidence in the military impacts the enrollment numbers. And then mm-hmm. our foreign, foreign policy initiatives and defense spending are also involved. I mean, if they're going to try to cut defense spending from the military, won't that make me feel like if I'm trying to join, then there might not be enough for me to get paid? Well, you're right. People with higher confidence in the military are also more likely to support defense spending. Right. Yeah. So, and the people who have higher confidence in the military are more likely to trust the military tool in a foreign policy crisis. So the attitude is linked to all these other attitudes that people care about as well. Now, sometimes too much confidence, right? So Mm -hmm. one of the things that we do in America is we use the military when we don't think we have a civilian tool that could handle it, when there should be civilian tools. Like uh, a good example is this, is in the COVID crisis, they were going to ask the military to distribute the vaccines. Well, that, that doesn't require any military expertise. That was just we have a crisis. The military mm-hmm. is our only institution that works. Let's ask the military to, Help. you know, take over and, and distribute the vaccines. And that can sometimes backfire by taking the military out of where they are best used and putting them in situations where, uh, you know, they're not well trained for. And a good example of that is when you're trying to bring the military in for law enforcement and and crowd control that's while they get some training for that uh, and the national guard gets more training for that that's really a law enforcement function 
And it's not good to bring the military into that. Every time the military has been dragged into one of those settings, it's mm-hmm. not gone well. No, because they blend in with each other. Yeah. Because the uniform that the police wear today was denied years ago when it was offered to the military. And then the military said, we're going to rock this ACU pattern in the army. And the Marines had their MARPAT. And so the civilians were like, well, we have this pattern that we have to sell, this multi-cam pattern that we have to sell. So they started selling it to law enforcement, civilians and hunters and all this kind of stuff. Airsofters were really buying it. So now it's on the civilian market. And now you have police departments and SWAT teams wearing multi-cam. Okay. Right. And it's blurring the distinctions. Correct. And now you have people saying we need to defund, defund, but the police and all this kind of stuff, because where are they getting it? But it's really demilitarized. See, because they get access to, it's not so much they have all this money, these departments need to be defunded. It's that they wrote off requisites to get old surplus that our DRMOs getting rid of through the military, which is a, uh, like a warehouse of old vehicles and gear and night vision and all that stuff that the war no longer needs. And it's getting thrown away. So instead of throwing it away, they say, Hey, write us a letter and uh, we'll send you some stuff to your departments. And so you get like a three, cop department in like say somewhere southern utah here that's just also now got 14 m4s an mrap and a bunch of combat a bunch of stuff and maybe two of those guys on that team are veterans from the military and so now you get those guys wearing their multicams okay because that's a civilian pattern and then they get these vehicles and these things that were tan at the sole or green and then they paint them black so it looks civilian but then you put the same guy who has the heartbeat of driving that thing in that thing. How can he not be military already and try to uphold the law? Right. So and, go ahead. And one of the things that the, the polls show is that these distinctions, which mean something to experts like mm-hmm. you. Thanks. Get blurred and lost in the general public as a whole. Right. Because yes. they'll just the public doesn't really draw sharp distinctions between Army, Air Force, no. Marines or regular versus guard versus reserve. The public doesn't even draw much of a distinction between current and retired. The public doesn't know who's retired or not. And in retirement, the senior officers, they keep their rank, right? Right. You're a retired, if you're a retired general, you're first thing general. general yeah. the rest of your life. I've been to the and VA, uh, general uh, Dempsey. I'm like, oh, hey, what's up, general? Still general, yeah, sir. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so that speaks to yet a different issue, which is that the professional norms that we ask the active duty to live by, we must also be encouraging the retired to live by as well. And this is a problem because retired, of course, have more civil rights than the active duty. Active duty, a lot of Americans don't know this, active duty don't have the same First Amendment rights that you and I have. That's right. They are restricted in what they can say. In particular, they can't Speak ill of the president as commander in chief. That would be an Article eighty eight violation of the of their the uniform code of military justice. So they have to be careful. But then you get retired military whose first name is still admiral or general going on TV and lacerating, right? right. You know, and speaking in the most bitter partisan terms, and that creates confusion in the public, and it ha- helps to politicize the military. So your point about you know, fine distinctions and blurring those lines mm-hmm. is, is exactly right. They The public is not seeing that. And so that's incumbent on the military and retired community to say, we're going to hold ourselves to a higher standard. Correct. 
And otherwise, we're going to be dragging the military down, the nonpartisan active duty force, which has to obey the president no matter who he or she is. We're going to be dragging that into the partisan muck. And just to piggyback on that uniform conversation I was just mentioning, you know, years later, multi that color, that pattern was adopted finally by the army, right? And then the army is now using it today. And so is the Air Force. And so you get these guys, if you have a law enforcement team and then the army or Air Force together, they're just going to look like one unit. Right. Right. Yeah. And this is a, this is a challenge. And we ran into this in 2020 with the the protests and the whole nine yards and and trying to maintain civil order. It it was a challenge. And and so even General Milley said, I would never have walked out there in my uniform if I knew that I was being walked out there in my uniform like that. He's like, I would not have crossed the line of the U.S. Because with respect to you and to others that I have on the show who have that kind of rank, I asked them, how do you stay from one, you know, like one brand, like the Bush to the Clintons? How do you stay that way? And one one general said, Rad, it says U.S. right here. And that's why I quote, I say U.S. Army, U.S., you know, U.S. It says U.S. Well, our military officers, they sign an oath, or not sign, they they give an oath mm-hmm. of allegiance to the Constitution, mm-hmm. not to the President of the United States, or not to an individual. Now, of course, by uh, registering an oath to obey the Constitution, that means they will obey the President as Commander-in-Chief when he gives a lawful order. So, of course... It has direct implications of how they interact with any individual president. But their loyalty is not to that person, to that individual. It's to the office as reflected under the Constitution. And this is an important distinction that the uniformed military have drilled in them. They understand that. But you know who doesn't understand that so well? Civilian Civilian population. Well, the civilian population, but even civilian politicians. Right? That's what because, I meant. Yeah, yeah, I agreed. Yeah, yeah, the people that become their, the boss. It's like, yeah, the, it, it's very hard if you're, you know, a civilian political leader. Those ideas blur in your mind. And you, know, so, you know, I once asked my dad. I said, Dad, you know, uh, how come we don't just elect all veterans? And he was just like, Well, Aaron, you, you don't really want to have the military running the whole show. Right. That's what he told me as a younger man. I had asked him that, like, how come, you know, we're all great. You know, the perception is perfect. And how come veterans aren't just every congressman's a veteran or whatever? What's your thoughts on that same thing my dad mentioned? So I think it's good for veterans to run. I think if the percentage of veterans is too low, then you lose a certain amount of uh, awareness and, you know, knowledge base. And one of the reasons why I like veterans in Congress and mm-hmm. in the executive branch is veterans will hold the military accountable. So it, some people might think, well, if they're veterans, they're going to go easy on the military. No, because they're veterans, they'll go harder. Mm-hmm. Senator McCain was ruthless oh, in holding yeah. the military accountable precisely because he had served and knew. So I think there's value in it. But I think veterans may overstate the value in it. And many people run for office thinking, well, because I serve, that makes me a good politician. Not necessarily. If the only thing you've got going for you is your heroic military service, then chances are you won't do well as a civilian political leader because it is a different skill set. And, of course, we had, we've had we had generals who were very capable presidents, General Washington, President Washington, 
General Eisenhower, President Eisenhower. What they both had in common, though, was they were exceptionally able political figures, even while they were in military office. Now, they weren't partisan. I'm, they were not partisan, but they had political skills. That's why Eisenhower was chosen for his job. It was his political skills as opposed to his combat skills that made him, you know, the five-star commander that he was. Those political skills also translated into being a good president. And so it's not the case that every veteran will be a good political leader. But I do want some of our political leaders to be veterans. Sure. And it's also the case that when you run for office, you become a partisan. So... There, I, this what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Yeah, tell me what you mean by that. Well, here's the point I'm trying to make. I want veterans, particularly senior retired, you know, four stars, retired four stars. I want them not to be in the business of endorsing candidates for president. Mm-hmm. You know, the spectacle every four years, mm-hmm. the Republicans trot out their list, the Democrats trot out their yeah. list. This is not a good look. This politicizes the military. These are retired four stars, they have the right to do this. So that's not the issue. But it's not the right thing for them to do because it's trading on the status that the military as a nonpartisan institution has Mm -hmm. to endorse a president and to say this president, not that president. That's politicizes the military. But if you run for office, okay, now you're no longer trying to keep one toe as a nonpartisan. You are a partisan. So you run for office, now you're a Republican or a Democrat, yeah. and that's okay. So crossing all the way over, running as a veteran, that's okay. But trying to say, well, I'm going to keep all the privileges that come from being a nonpartisan, but I'm just going to do this very partisan act of endorsing this or that candidate, that's where the problem is. And it, it makes the job of the current military that much harder. And so that's why it's, it's striking. Every chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Going back to Admiral Mullen, they've made the, a priority to say, let's try to get the military out of the endorsement business because they worry that it will undermine, it'll politicize the military and then undermine public confidence in the mm-hmm. military. No, 100%. And that's our show. No, <laughs> no, that's great. No, it's true. You, you're, so, you're so well spoken. That was just really great. You know, uh, it does politicize it, it does put this spotlight like hey now all of a sudden like this general says something and that whole entire establishment is under his control still but he's retired and right you well, know and the american the average american might be thinking aha i bet this is what the re- active duties force would say if they were allowed to but if that's the case now we've got the active duty force in the election you know as a partisan actor not good because the active duty force has to obey whoever wins, even if it's not, quote unquote, their candidate. Yeah. And and this is something that we have an extraordinarily proud record in the United States of the military remaining subordinate to civilian control, regardless of who wins. And even if the new guy comes in and changes all the policies, they salute, obey, and implement it. Right. That's a precious thing, and we shouldn't take it for granted or play loose with it officers and enlisted you know still have the the duty to themselves to disobey an immoral order that illegal order uh, illegal order right like right i mean Uh, if they uh, find tell me tell me it's an important distinction 
Yeah, I'm sorry to cut you off. No, you know, okay, so in the legal order, right? So tell me yes. the difference between the illegal and um, immoral, you, you know, right. that they have to follow. The difference is the lawyers. <laughs> That's ah. So the lawyers. Think about this legal, immoral, unwise. So illegal, immoral, unwise. Our system requires that the military not carry out an illegal order, but they are supposed to carry out an order they deem to be immoral mm -hmm. or unwise. That's what it is. If it's illegal, and if they have a question, you know, is this legal or illegal? Okay, that's what the JAG is for, the lawyer, right. the military lawyer. The military lawyer will say, sir, we can't do that. That's illegal. That's against the laws of war. Okay, I'm not going to carry it out. We if they carry out an illegal order, they could be court-martialed. Mm -hmm. But if they refuse to carry out an order they deem to be immoral or unwise, they could also be court-martialed. And let me give you an example of a of you know a boundary example. Take the order, President Biden's order to withdraw from Afghanistan, no mm -hmm. matter what, no matter what the consequences. Many people, and you know, I was one of them, thought this was an unwise decision by the president, that it was going to hurt America, hurt American interests. I thought we should have stayed at the low level we were in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Many other people also thought it was an immoral decision because it broke faith with the Afghans who had sacrificed, and it broke faith with those who had died, uh, you know, Americans who had died on the mission because he just, you know, sort of abandoned the Afghan uh, government to their fate. And of course, the Taliban won. It, it may, we can argue about whether it was unwise. We can argue about whether it was immoral, but it was legal. He had the legal authority to order it. And so General Milley and the rest of the troops did the right thing. They advised the president. They said, we don't think this is good, sir. You should think about it a second, a third time. <laughs> president said, right. I have, I'm going to do it. Okay. They didn't like it. They thought it was unwise. And many of them were disturbed by what the consequences were, but they carried it out. And that's what civilian control in a democracy means. So illegal orders, the military must not carry them out. But orders that are they think are immoral or unwise, those they have to carry out. Yes, it's a tough job. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is why you need to have very highly trained. Yes. Military, and that's kind of, why we need the all-volunteer. What a tough job, teams. you know. Just the thought of you know uh, that whole situation and having to to Millie's the guy to call. <laughs> He's like, "What's up, sir? Oh, sir, yeah. we have some people, sir." And yeah. he probably saying, "I know, but what else can we do?" And they went back with, "I, I, to be a fly on the wall." Holy cow! You know, yeah. thoughts in the minds at, at night when you're going to bed. You know, when you're trying to make your ultimate business decisions, you're like. <sighs> yeah. Well, he served during in a very extraordinary time. So yes. the General Milley's had, and you know, the last six months of the Trump administration, very challenging time mm -hmm. to be chairman. And of course, the last two years, also a challenging time. He's a Green Beret, though, I believe. <laughs> well, a colleague of mine, Corey Shockey, and I like to say, you should judge a chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff the way you judge Olympic diving. That is, they get points for the difficulty of the dive yes. that they have to do. They kick up a little splash, but it's a very difficult dive. Okay, still, we're going to grade them high because it's a very difficult dive.
Oh, man. It's like 40 meters up. <laughs> You're going to go there. <laughs> Triple Lutz. Oh, man. <laughs> I, know, I know you don't want to date the, the podcast, but Go. you know, right now the Senate is considering whether to confirm a CQ Brown, who is President Biden's appointee or nominee, I should say, to be chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And he, I think, is a strong choice. He is a, a combat veteran. He, he's an Air Force pilot. And I think it's actually good just to rotate the chairmanship across sure. the services. It's been a while since we've had an Air Force leaders, and he's really focused on accelerating the transition of the Air Force, modernizing to meet you know the next gen threats. So he's got a strong focus on that, and he's just a down the middle kind of guy. You know, I think that will calm some of the waters. It, we, the mm-hmm. waters have been roiling. Yeah, and uh, General Brown is kind of a straight down the middle kind of guy. What would and, get him uh, not? What would get him confirmed right now? How can we? What would get him? To be that who has to pass well, that you know it's interesting senator tuberville has a hold on him right now but tuberville himself indicated that he thought he'd be a good candidate and would vote for him once he lifts his own hold on him so i think the congress recognizes that this is a good choice a good choice for america they just we just got to get the holds lifted so that the congress the senate can vote on it it's yeah the senate's got to do its job so with the Senate and the Congress and you serving in a national position, you know, under different administrations, do you think that you're going to be back up to bat at the White House or anything like that? Do you foresee that? Do you want that? Do you want that? Well, this is the uh, old Woody Allen joke. Do I want to join any club that would have me for a member? You know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so if the president asks you to serve, then you serve. And yeah. I, I, if any president asked me to serve, I would. I would probably serve uh, regardless of the the party and regardless of the president. And, uh, you know, I was one of those folks who signed a lot of letters saying that they would not vote for President Trump, even though I'm a Republican and political appointee and Republican. I signed all those letters and said I would not vote for Trump. And I did not vote for Trump, President Trump. Mm -hmm. But if he had asked me to serve, I would have thought seriously about doing so because that's serving the country. Now, he didn't ask me precisely because I signed those letters. I recognize that. Oh, but I had many friends who went in to serve and work for him. They served honorably. They did the best they could. And I did what I could to help them from afar. And that's what the country needs. The country, there's real disagreements between Democrats and Republicans. I don't want to pretend that there's no difference of opinion. There's real differences of opinion. But at the end of the day, we're going to have to work together yes. to meet the really big threats, which are outside. And if we make our internal disagreements the big threats, then we're in trouble. We shouldn't be kicking our own butts. We should not be yeah. in-house fighting. We Precisely. want to keep it from our shores, right? So I do what I can to help the current administration. I do what I can to help Republicans on the Hill understand the issues better. And so whoever is president, I'll do what I can to help them. Well, I think that that's a wonderful way to wind down our show. Okay, I've had your time for a good hour, and I really want to thank you and my listener for being on the show. It's thanks for my service. Peter's thanks for your service. Thanks for your service. Oh, I'm looking right at you, though, and I just, you know, we've all been there, and I know a lot of service members say, it's a job. I'm doing a job. I'm getting a paycheck. I put on a uniform. I'm doing a job. You don't have to thank me for my service. I think a lot of civilians are always going to kind of put them at that, like, thanks for their service. Just accept that. 
when you see them at the airport and say, you're welcome. (laughs) Okay. And again, Peter Fever, uh, former national security, awesome guy, Duke professor, theater, Wolverine. Okay. (laughs) Wolverine all day. And a shout out to my homeboy, Darren Dalton. Uh, Let's see if we can get C Thomas Howell on the show one of these days. And then, uh, yeah, let's have you back. Maybe you can get the general on with you and we can have like a fun theater versus reality show or something. Okay. You're great. That would be fun. Great talking to you. Well, thank you. And to my listeners, please keep supporting us and go check out that merch store. Thanks to Brandon Webb, who puts me on the air and believes in me. And to you, do something nice for your neighbor today or someone that you see. So say hi. And uh, that's saying peace from Sopra. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio.